1: and you found this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Rob Morris. Rob is the CEO and co-founder of Love 146, an international human rights organization working to end child trafficking and exploitation. Before co-founding Love 146, Rob worked with Mercy Ships International where he directed training schools at the International Operations Center. He has lectured and taught in more than 20 countries on issues of justice, compassion, and human rights. And he has been featured in the Huffington Post, the CNN Freedom Project, Forbes, WNPR, Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing podcast on WNYC, Fox News, and more. And now today, here on Next Steps Forward. Rob Morris, welcome. Thank you, Chris, I appreciate you having me. No, I appreciate your time, sir. Rob, you traveled to Southeast Asia in 2002 to learn more about the then-growing human trafficking movement. As I noted in the opener, you had worked with Mercy Ships International so you had a humanitarian background, but taking such a dramatic step is still not something most people expect. What sparked you to think of doing that? And then how did you know how to make that trip happen so you would learn what you were attempting to learn?
2: Um, yeah, I, I think uh, for myself, I was actually uh, at the time, this is back in 2002, uh, um, I was actually playing drums in a band. Uh, you know, sometimes pe- people will think, oh, man, you must have this massive background in human rights or legal, um, the legal realm or whatever. But I was actually the, the drummer in a band. But my myself and my wife have always had a heart specifically for uh, for vulnerable children. Um, it's how we built our family. And um, uh, uh, and so um yeah, so in the process of being in a band, I was just I started hearing about this thing called child trafficking, um, and uh, myself and a couple of friends who also had heart for kids and and uh, and vulnerable people uh, started hearing about this issue. And honestly, I didn't know anything about it. And back in two thousand two, not a lot of people were talking about human trafficking. It was relatively new terminology, not a new crime. The crime has existed forever, um, but the but the terminology of human trafficking was fairly new. So I didn't know anything about it. And then frankly, was really stunned when I started digging in and fr- trying to find out what is this, what is this and and how is this still happening? And my God, why is it happening um, to children? So in the process of learning about it, along with a couple of friends, you know, we started finding a couple of organizations that were doing some things about it. Um, and then, I mean, that began the journey of just educating ourselves and learning as much as we possibly could about um about the issue. And, and it is the proverbial dr- rabbit hole, right? The, the, the more you learn, uh, the darker it gets. And that's kind of the trajectory that that sparked our first uh, diving into this.
1: And in what country and city or cities did you choose to visit and why? So, yeah, so we connected with one of the
2: organizations that we connected with in our educational process um, have operating centers all over the world. And we thought um as people who had a couple of platforms of influence through music and and the arts, we thought let's use these platforms for good but we should learn about it and and this organization that we connected with sort of made that recommendation as well they said if you're going to be talking about this you should really understand it um and uh in that process of developing a relationship with this organization specifically one of the co-founders of Love 146 developed a close relationship with the uh, the head of this organization they invited us to see it firsthand they said you know we we'd love to invite you to one of our operating centers in a southeast asian country to see what, what our work looks like firsthand and what the issue looks like firsthand. And so uh, they invited us uh, to, to visit one of their centers. Specifically, this was a center that was located in Thailand. Um, and so uh, that's what brought us there. And when when we were there, um, they were in the middle of an investigation. This is an organization made up of a lot of criminal investigators, legal people, lawyers that work aso- alongside of local law enforcement and uh, local legal teams uh, to, to not only... Um, uh recover people from these horrific situations but then also to be participants in the process of justice taking place where the perpetrators are are caught they're apprehended and hopefully face um uh justice so that's how that's how we connected with this organization and they were in the middle of an investigation when we were there and um this particular night in this particular city, um, they, uh, they were going in undercover. They, they have surveillance equipment on. Um, they go in posing as customers into brothels and places where children are being exploited. Um, and they gather evidence. And, uh, and they also have to do a separate investigation of local law enforcement um, to weed out those that are corrupt. And there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Sometimes the law enforcement are paid by brothel managers to look the other way, or even sometimes for, for protection. So they have to do all these investigations. And um, they were in the process of this investigation. And they said, we're going in actually tonight. Do you want to come in? And we would never, looking back now and the things that we've learned from 20 years doing this, we would never recommend an organization invite people to just come in on an investigation. Um, But not knowing any better at the time, we said, yeah, you know, we'll we'll go in. And uh, I'll never forget this, Chris. We had um, this this lead investigator. They they gave us these brief instructions on how to pose as a customer. Um, the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by and it was easily the most disturbing experience of my life to have to pretend to be that very thing that I'm repulsed by and, um, and after they gave us these brief instructions on how to pose as a customer I remember one of the last things this investigator said before we went in they said, Look, if you don't think you can do this. Or if you don't think you can hold it together with what you're about to see, do not come in because we cannot risk you destroying this investigation that they had been, it's been, it was an ongoing thing. And we were like, no worries until we got into this place. And we'll never forget walking in. Um, and finding ourselves standing in a room, looking through these glass windows at these um, young girls wearing matching red dresses, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them, them—they just had numbers pinned to their dresses. And on this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who were purchasing these kids for sex. Um, and even the brothel workers were handing us—literally—they were handing us menus with the numbers of the children that corresponded with what they could provide as far as services to the customers. And I remember in that moment, the words of this investigator going through my head, if you don't think you can hold it together, because everything in me as um, a man, as a father, um, as a human being was really struggling holding it together because you instinctively want to react in that moment, right? So you're thinking through your head, you know, you know, I want to smash through this glass right now and get these kids out of here. I want, how many of these people in this room could we take out? All those kinds of things, right, that you think about. Um, but we had to refrain um, in, in that moment so that this investigation evidence could be gathered um, that would warrant a recovery operation and hopefully a prosecution. Um, and I think the thing that so took my breath away was the looks in the eyes of these kids. You know, having seven kids of my own, um, I I know what children should look like, right? There's a, there should be that light on in their eyes and and that sparkle, and uh, they were sitting there, they were watching these children's cartoons on crackling little television sets, waiting literally to be purchased, and. Abused and I've learned a lot about trauma and what trauma can do to a human being since then. Um, and how the human body has an amazing ability to shut down in emergency type traumatic situations. And these kids were just had these, they were just staring at these television sets with this distance kind of, kind of stare, except for one girl. And I will never forget her. Um, She was the only one not looking at the children's cartoon. She was staring at us through uh, the glass and that look in her eyes. And again, I don't know because I wasn't in her head. But from my perspective, you know, you wonder, is this the look of trauma? Is this the look of fight and defiance? What is that look? But I will never forget it. And I will never forget her number. You know, her number was 146. And so, even when we eventually led to, you know, you know, uh, starting an organization, um, part of that process had looked like, man, we want to remember that this is not just about an issue or a cause, but it's about real human beings. Sometimes I think we can dehumanize people by putting them under categories of issues and causes, right? Human trafficking victims or the poor, the refugees, the homeless, and and all of that. And we forget we're talking about human beings here. And so even when naming the organization Love 146, it's to not only remember her, but all the children that she she represents. And so that was the beginning. That was the life-changing moment of like, you don't walk away from that experience and not do something there's a, you're compelled to act in some way and that began this journey of like well what does that go what is that going to look like and how do we respond and so um we left there the night because the the investigation was not complete um later on down the road several weeks later i believe there was a recovery operation and somebody had tipped off the brothel managers because the, the young people that were there when we were there um had already been removed and so we still to this day don't know what happened to her? Um, but it haunts us to this uh, to this day. And the work that we do is again to remember her and uh, and kids that are
1: in similar situations. So you said a couple of times there that that moment changed your life. Obviously, it would change anybody's, and fortunately, the lives of many others. And in a minute, we're going to talk about its wider ripples. But let's focus on you and the organization first. As you came out of there, as you came back home. What went through your mind, and how did you formulate that plan that led you to co-founding love One forty six?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So after reeling through just the initial impact, the emotional impact, I remember my wife, I, I called my wife that night from the hotel room, and I couldn't even speak. like I, I I could not even talk. And there was a long silence at the other end of the phone, and my wife said, this is going to change everything, isn't it? And I'm like, I think it is. I I really do. I think it. I I don't even know what to do about this from this point of view. We've got to do something. And so we did. And this is what we encourage everyone to do, Chris, as far as a first step is to educate ourselves, that we want to we want to make sure that whatever we do is going to be effective as a response um and so um uh so we began to educate ourselves learn what's missing you know we I'm not an investigator I was a drummer in a band for God's sake right you know and and it's like what what I't you know there's people that are doing this work what are there missing pieces and so in in connecting with organizations reaching out finding out what was being done what was not being done we started to identify sort of gaps one of the gaps that we identified was effective survivor care right so when kids are brought out of these situations, what happens next? How how do they recover from this kind of trauma uh, that has happened since sometimes since, since they were very young, every day, multiple times a day? What does that look like? And some of the the, the things that we were discovering at the time were a lot of times they were government-run facilities, that they were, needs were just not being met. There was not a, a lot of effective care for survivors who experienced this level of trauma. So, we said, okay, that's there's a piece there, um, you know, and then the other thing eventually we identified was prevention. But the main thing was that we put we put a lot of thought and we educate ourselves. You know, I, I tell people this often in, in the early years, I think it was in one or two years. in, um, I was meeting with a, the leader of a large human rights organization in Cambodia, and she looked at me and she says, um, she goes, you know what your problem is as Americans? And I sort of braced myself because you get this a lot when you travel as an American. I <laughs> well, I could think of some things, but I know you're gonna tell me. So go for it. What is that? What's our problem? And she looked at me and she goes, You don't think. Instead, you react. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting observation. And and I asked her to unpack it. She goes, I think a lot of times, you people, you see some human rights abuse happening in the world. You see something happening. But instead of taking the time to think through solutions that will be effective and sustainable, you just react. And because you haven't put thought into your reaction, honestly, oftentimes your reaction causes more harm than good. And I will never forget that. I felt like somebody laid a, a house on my shoulders of responsibility of like, wow, whatever we do, we want to put thought into it because we want to, at the end of the day, be effective and we want to be sustainable because children are worth that. Um, and so that sort of was our mandate of like, we're going to be thoughtful. We're going to really learn as much as we can. And to this day, we call ourselves, I mean, one of one of our things is that we we look at ourselves as forever learners. We're always learning. We're never arriving, you know, and, and we realize that it's not just a black and white issue. It's a complex issue. There's so many complexities. And sometimes if you just react, sometimes, again, your reaction can cause harm rather than um, cause good. And so, we put a lot of thought uh, into everything. And that's sort of like what birthed as a foundation of what we're going to respond like. Um, So, yeah. And that meant finding people with expertise. Again, I'm a drummer in a band. I don't know anything about trauma counseling. You know, I don't. I don't know anything about prevention education and all of that. And so, I, I, I often tell people that my expertise is knowing what I'm not an expert in, and then finding those people that carry that expertise and bringing them into um, uh, the picture. And that's how our organization sort of developed.
1: That was amazing advice in terms of you know thinking versus reacting, and oh. it's 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 a life lesson right there. Something as simple as that, right? Oh,
2: the life lessons I've been learning over the oh. last 20 years in doing this work are just extraordinary. And every day there's something new. Are you so, writing a book?
1: <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. I don't have time. <laughs> True. And I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, acknowledge Heather Fisher, who worked with you many years ago and got her start in the, the human trafficking space and was the first human trafficking czar in the White House. Uh, and she introduced us. And so I want to thank her and the work that she does at, at Thompson border Special Services. And also a shout out to one of my favorite guests, uh, Andy Berger, uh, who started Voices Against Trafficking. If For those of you, uh, our listeners, if you remember, uh, Andy was trafficked at the age of six months, the age of 16. Uh, she has created something called Beulah's Place for uh, women who have been trafficked. Uh, her daughter is also a victim uh, that she adopted. And so uh, birds of a feather, Rob, and I told you I'd connect you guys, but just want to give them a shout out and acknowledge the work they do as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a 2019 Forbes story noted that you, quote, can be sitting at his desk in the hallway, close quote, because you refuse a traditional office setting. I'm not gonna lie, I'm an office guy, it's kind of odd. How does moving your desk into the hallway help you be a better chief executive officer? (laughs)
2: <laughs> so we, we actually just we, during the pandemic we moved from those offices we're in actually another office now that do, that doesn't have any offices. It's just a big open space. there are some private areas for phone calls or private meetings that you can go into, but nobody has their own dedicated office and my thinking on that is is not all like unselfish in in its motivation, right there's the thought of like, yeah, I want to be um approachable, I want, people to have access to me, but that also goes the other way. I want to be in the mess of it all. I don't want to be secluded someplace in an office um, that I don't get to, I mean, my staff, people that work at Love 146 inspire the heck out of me every single day. I want to be in that, man. I want to be around that. I don't want to be removed from that. There's a lot smarter people in Love 146 than me. I want to be around that level of intelligence and thoughtfulness and all of that. So it's also not just about me being accessible and approachable, but it's me wanting to be um, accessing and approaching those that I admire and those that inspire me and so being in the mix of it all. And I find, I don't know about you, but I find like Meetings with set agendas are great. You get a lot accomplished and everything. But I find that some of the best ideas come spontaneously in conversations that just take place. So somebody passing you, you know, your, your desk or if you're, if you're not in that, you don't get that sort of fuel that fuels a fire that keeps going. And honestly, in this work, I mean, trying to keep our heads above water because it's so dark and so hard. Um, we need each other. And so we want to be around um, each other. And so I do, I get to, I get to wake up in the morning and yeah, I do really hard, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching work, but I get to do it with people I love to be around as well. And so there's that mutual keeping our heads above water thing that takes place. So yeah, so it's a, it's definitely a mutual, a mutual kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And I want to come back to that uh, dark and heart-wrenching work in a moment, but you're also doing, I think, you know, CEO 101 stuff where you surround yourself with the best and brightest just to mm-hmm. get the job done. Um, but that same article quoted you as saying that you know too much and have seen too much to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. Instead, you choose to use the term defiant hope. Can you elaborate on that, please?
2: Yeah, that's I'm glad you asked that question. Um, sometimes, you know, people, people will hear me speak publicly, or um, they'll see videos that I've done or whatever. And then people will be like, Oh, my gosh, I love your optimism, especially in this, you know, with dealing with such a, a dark issue. I you know, how do you become how do you how are you so optimistic? And I'm like, You don't know me because I am not an optimist by any shake. I mean, it's like, I wish I was, I'm not anti-optimist. I like being around optimists, but I'm not an optimist, right? Because again, I've seen too much to be optimistic. And honestly, I think optimism has a tendency, not all the time. And again, I'm not anti-optimist, but if you're an optimist and you're listening to this, uh, man, stay optimistic. But sometimes optimism, I think, has a tendency to move a little close to denial, right where there's this like yeah things are bad but everything's going to be okay everything's going to turn out okay right and there's a passivity to optimism whereas hope i think is a little bit different and when it, we've attached the word defiant to that very purposely because hope to me is is action oriented it's not passive defiance like i man i, I Unfortunately, defiance, the word has a really negative rap, right? Like if I had a dollar for every time I heard the word defiant growing up from school teachers or my own parents, I'd be able to fund the work of Love 146 forever, right? It was always like, you're such a defiant young man. Where's that defiance coming from? Well, now that I've attached that defiance to hope, it's paying off in spades, man, because there's an insistence to it, right? There's an insistence that, man, this dark thing right now, this heartbreaking thing, it's very real and you feel it to your bones, but it's not the whole story. There's more to it. It's just like, like people that have experienced this kind of trauma. When we see in kids that we work with and everything, recognizing that the worst thing that's ever happened to you is not your whole story, right? Nobody, including you and I and anyone listening, nobody wants to be defined by the worst thing that ever happened to them, right? But that ends up being the case often. So defiant hope is like, yeah, things are really bad. They're horrific. This situation or this issue, this child trafficking that we're talking about, it's horrific, Um, but it's not the whole story. And I insist that it can change and it can potentially change by my action. So there's an action connected um, to hope. It's a pushing back against darkness, um, not just accepting it or pretending um, it's not there. And the crazy beautiful thing of this is that we're learning this from kids that we work with right? You talk about defiantly hopeful people, you know, for for some of our kids that are in our care, for them to wake up in the morning and choose to live another day, that is an act of defiant hope. Um, How can we exercise anything less um, than that? And so we get to experience that and see that even in the kids that we serve. Um, So it's an inspiration to us as well.
1: My wife and I have three kids. And so I can't imagine anything happening to them in terms of being trafficked you know, one thing I've learned over the show and having guests like yourself on is a lot of people think, oh, well, it's not my neighborhood. You know, we've got the white picket fence and upper middle class and all that stuff, but it's everywhere. You know, you talked a few minutes ago about the dark stuff that you're going through and the horrific things you see in, in all of your, your colleagues. How do you guys just cope with that as, as individuals, as spouses, as, as parents? I just can't imagine the, the toll on your mental health.
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we put a big emphasis with, um, with everyone that works within Love 146. We put a big emphasis on self care, um, of making sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you're ready for the fight, right? That so that you can stay in the fight, you can stay in it for the long haul. And so we recognize that even something like most human rights issues and human rights abuses, you have to, you have to look f- like at the long haul scenario right that it's not a it's not a sprint people like i i kind of years ago in 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 working in this realm I, I do i move a lot in like social justice circles right and i meet a lot of um burnt out cynical ex-activists a lot and it's always this sort of like warning sign for me of like I don't want to become that. And so I look for those that have stayed in it for, long, for a long time, you know, like civil rights leaders from way back who marched in Selma, who are still in it, right? Still in it where you feel like you're taking two steps forward, three steps back. And I try to find, man, there are people out there that have sustained and are still in it. And what are their secrets? And so I think part of it is, again, surrounding myself with like-minded people, people that are in it. So one day when you get up and you're just like, and I don't have it in me today. You've got, you're surrounded by people that can carry you right through their own um, inspiration and through their own um, uh, activity. Uh, My faith, I'm a person of faith. And so my faith is also something that I rely on. My family, you know, my kids don't look, don't see me as like, the CEO and co-founder of Love 140 a human rights guy, you know, or anything like that. My <laughs> kids, he's dad. I wrestle with my kids on the floor. We play, you know what I mean? It's like, I, you can experience all of that. Again, it's, it's, it's the big picture thing. And then the other thing, is there's so many people joining the fight every day. That's what helps keep my head above water. I meet people all the time. And it wasn't always like that. Back when we started this, when you go into a room, you'd be lucky if you get five people gathered together that would care about human trafficking, right? Now you pack out, you know, in entire arenas and stuff where people are wanting, I want in, I want to do something about this. I want to get involved in everything. So people joining the fight, um. Wow whether it's through their own skills or education vocationally funding whatever so yeah it's it's inspiring it keeps our heads above water
1: and can you describe Love 146 and its mission for our listeners please Sure. So our, our end goal is the end of child trafficking
2: and exploitation, nothing less. And we recognize that that's a really lofty goal. We've, I, I've had people say, oh, don't you think that's a bit naive or idealistic when you look at the, the numbers and the estimates of how many people this is happening to and everything. And I hate, I hate that sort of defeatist sort of mentality. Um, I think, first of all, it ignores history because people used to say the same thing to, like, William Wilberforce, who for decades fought against the transatlantic slave trade, right? And people thought he was kidding when he stood up in front of Parliament and said, I think this needs to end, knowing that the the economy of the entire British Empire was based on the backs of slavery. So, um, But he kept going, right? The Malalas of the world, the MLKs of the world, I don't think they're idealistic or naive. Um, I, I think they're audacious, and that's a different thing. And I think it's people of audacity that end up changing the world. So yeah, so that's our goal is the end of child trafficking. We have two core programs. We we work toward that goal by um, caring for survivors. And after doing that for some time, uh, both in Asia and in the UK and here in the US, we realized we're not going to end this by just caring for survivors. We've got to figure out a way to stop it from happening. And that's when we launched our prevention program. So prevention and survivor care are the two core areas that we work in at 1114
1: so you mentioned the uk and australia no not australia asia, uh, southeast, sorry, asia. southeast asia Asia. Mm-hmm. yes uh so you're an international organization mm-hmm. fantastic yes. international human rights organization the love 146 website informs us that trafficking doesn't just happen to girls it doesn't just happen over there it's more often for labor than sex can you describe that bigger picture for us please
2: yeah i think again there's so many like um Uh, misperceptions or characterizations of what trafficking looks like, because we all saw the movie with Liam Neeson called Taken. So we think that's what it looks like. Um, But the reality is it's not always what it looks like. It's not the person with the dark hat and the sunglasses on and stuff like that, or the white van with the duct tape, although those situations have happened and can happen. um, But sometimes it looks like the gym teacher of your kid's school that is the perpetrator, the the youth pastor in, in the church, you know, a neighbor, a family member, many of the kids that have, that have been in our care, it's been a family member or somebody they knew that was their trafficker or or their exploiter. Um, and again, when I, I'm one of those people that didn't think that it happened here. I thought it was because my experience with it the first time was over there. And then when I come here and I start looking at the situation here, it's like, wow, this is something that happens here as well. It's some yeah, something that can't be ignored.
1: Yeah. No, I know when you and I spoke last week, um, the news had just come out about a, a ring in San Diego, of thirty people being busted, and about a month ago, not too far from me in New Jersey, there was thirteen people taken down uh, about six weeks ago, and so it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, everywhere, and like you mentioned to me when we spoke last week, that you know I asked you how you know quote businesses, and you said, well, if it's business, it's it's booming, but that doesn't mean a good thing. Right.
2: The the ultimate answer to that one day would be, hey man, we're doing this work so well and so many other people are as well that we're going to be out of business and you won't we won't even be needed in a year. That would be the ultimate answer to Absolutely. that. But the reality is as we're growing and for horrific reason.
1: Yeah. So people who are trafficked for labor can't all be physically trapped in locked buildings or otherwise restrained. How can those people find their way to freedom? I mean, I think
2: a lot of it has to do with, again, our self, p- being educated, right? Like, like we, you know, w- when you think about like, even like contractors, when you're having work done on your house, oftentimes contractors being aware that subcontractors, you know, are, are, are those people. S- sleeping on the job in the house that they're building. You know, why is that? What, you know, uh, restaurant workers, the same thing, people that are working long, long hours and seems like they're not getting paid being aware of those situations. And, and I mean, awareness is the beginning of everything. Sometimes people, awareness gets a bad rap. You're like, Oh man, creating awareness, creating awareness. And I get it that sometimes it could feel like slacktivism, but awareness and being like, Hey, this, does, this doesn't this does look right to me, or this doesn't feel right to me. This seems a bit suspicious to me and asking questions. I just, we've had, we've done this, my wife and I have done this with people selling magazines at our house, young people sometimes in the dead of winter coming to our house and it looked like they're free. And we've, and we've asked the questions, hey, Talk, you know, who who's who dropped you off in our neighborhood? You know, are you getting paid? Do you get any of this? Do you see any of this? Well, it's a training program. And you start to dig because you know these some of these magazine selling things are connected to labor trafficking, right? And you don't you don't even think about that. You don't think about necessarily where you're Vegetables are growing that are being sold in Stop and Shop, and so getting getting aware and understanding, looking at supply chains, all of those things are really, really um, important. And again, even in your own neighborhood, Chris. I mean, we're in the state of Connect. Our headquarters, U.S. headquarters, where we have offices in other places in the states. But in Connecticut, we've provided direct services to over 700 kids in just a little tiny state of Connecticut, um, who are either confirmed or suspected victims of trafficking and exploitation. That gives you an idea of like the extent of what we're talking about here. And um, I don't know if you have in your neighborhood, but we in our neighborhood, we you, you drive by and you'll see signs on people's lawns that says drive like your kids live here. Right. And then right away, you're like driving more carefully. Then you feel terrible that now it took that to, to make the link of like, if that was my kid, I want to drive more carefully. We should be driving more carefully because they're kids. Um, we should be aware that this is the situation that kids, man, we have a responsibility as adults to be able to uh, protect our children.
1: Let's start raising some awareness. The website is love146.org. That's love 146.org. What are some of your social media handles?
2: Same thing. You just go to love146, at love146 on Instagram. Um, we have Facebook. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I think somebody even started a TikTok, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm the old guy here, man. So I'm still, <laughs> still trying to track. But yeah, at love146. Same thing with Twitter, at love146.
1: You and I have the gray in our beards. We let the uh, the other folks take care of that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, smarter people. My kids (laughs) are smarter than me and all of that stuff. Just don't tell them that. So I imagine some people would encourage you to purchase the freedom of a child or someone else being trafficked. Is that a solution? And if not, why?
2: It's definitely not a solution. Though, again, that's exactly what we were talking about before as far as reaction. That's the reaction because you want to solve something now. Um, and that would make it feel like you did that. Uh, years ago, uh, the journalist Nick Kristof um, did something very similar to that and then came back after like years afterwards and said that was the wrong thing to do, recognizing that it's it's sol- it feels like it solves something in the immediate, but it's more about you feeling that than really making a difference because now what happens, right? Who's going to track with this child now um, on their long journey of recovery? Because, I mean, and this is the thing, right? Because people look at the initial recovery operation of like, that's the end goal. But the real work of recovery is sometimes lifelong right? Of, of recovering from that kind of trauma. And so, the initial taking a person out of the physical situation of being a, a victim of trafficking or exploitation is the first baby step. Then the hard work of recovering from that kind of trauma takes place. And so, the um, yeah, I think I think that's that that's where the rubber hits the road. And so if if I purchase somebody out of that situation, um I've just funded the very system that will then use my money um in order to keep their their exploitation going and that system going. I'm like pumping money into a system that is unjust at its core and needs to end. Um and so yeah, so it's not It's not really an effective answer. Again, sometimes we do these kinds of things because it makes us feel good in the moment. There's a sense of satisfaction. I did something, Um, but it's not necessarily the most effective thing. And that's where when we say sometimes our our reaction causes more harm than good, the harm that we just created by making it, wow, I'm going to keep this guy in business that's exploiting children because I just paid him. Um, That's not what we want to do.
1: You know, that's a great point because when you think about it, you know, you're going to buy the gun to take it off the street. You're going to buy the drugs to take it off the street. To your point, you're you're feeding that business uh, and helping it grow. Yeah. So you've seen and lived through, I can't begin to imagine how many tragic and heartbreaking stories as you've gone about your work for two decades now. Do some of them affect you more than others? Wow. Um
2: So so somebody asked me some time ago, they said, wow, you must have really thick skin to be able to do this work. And my answer to that, when I went, because it made me like look internally, right? I think, wow, I don't have thick skin at all because I'm affected all the time by this stuff, right? Like I've, I mean, yeah, anyone that knows me and has spent any time with me knows how affected I am. And that's what led to the action that you were talking about today. But um, I actually have come to the conclusion that thick skin is not necessarily a good thing. I should be affected by the pain of my neighbor, period. Like it should affect me. Um, It's what I do from that point. Forward that matters. I can get so self-focused on how it's affecting me that I forget what what this whole thing is about. Or I can figure out a way to, for that to move outward into something that looks like empathy and compassion and action that is um, effective. And so, um, yeah. So a, a couple of quick, quick examples of things. So I remember years ago when we first started the work, I was at a safe home in a Southeast Asian country, and. We spent the day there and there was a girl who was so traumatized, Chris, that she would spend her days at the edge of the safe home property, sitting in a pile of dirt, taking handfuls of dirt and pouring dirt over her head. She just wanted to disappear into the ground. That's a gut punch when you see this is a child that is so traumatized that this is her life now, that she just wants to disappear into the ground by pouring dirt overhead. I remember a therapy session that one of our, our, our uh, caregivers gave in um, our safe home in the Philippines for girls, where she had the, uh, the kids walk down this pathway that winds its way through our property. And um, uh, she says, I want you to picture your future walk down this pathway, picture your future, what do you see? And one of the first signs of recovery beginning to take place in kids that we work with is when they can dream again about their future. Because oftentimes when you when they first come into our care and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? There's this blank stare of just like, I don't even know what that means. Like if I survive today, that's a really good day for me. There's no sense of tomorrow or what I want to be when I grow up. There is no future, right? And so when a child can begin to say, hey, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a social worker, I want to be an actress or I want to be a flight attendant or whatever, we celebrate that stuff. So I remember this one therapy session that she did. One of the girls walked down the pathway and she says, I picture myself turning 18 one day someday I'm going to reach the age of 18. Something that you, that most of us will just take for granted, that we'll reach the age of 18. This was her dream, was that man, someday I'm going to reach the age of 18 and maybe for the first time in my life, people will celebrate the day that I was born. She never had a birthday party, never experienced that sort of celebration before. She was like, I dream of turning 18 and people will notice. You know, Another girl walks down the pathway and um, she says, man, I dream of walking down another pathway at my graduation from high school. My dream is that I get an education someday. I just want to get an education and someday graduate from high school and walk down that aisle at at my high school graduation. You know, again, something that most of us take for granted. A third girl walks down the pathway. She stops in the middle of the pathway and she closes her eyes and she pretends to hold a bouquet of flowers in her hands. And she says, I picture a wedding day that maybe someday somebody's going to love me and value me the way that I should be loved. And valued and stuff. Those are the things that stick with me. Again, this is not about an issue, or a cause or any of that stuff. It's about individual children. You know, I, I had a I was at the, right before the pandemic. I was visiting um, uh, one of our safe homes in the Philippines, and attached to the safe home is this um, uh, is, is a farm where we have animals on the farm, where we're growing vegetables and everything. It feeds the home and all of that. It's it's so so. There's a sustainability aspect to it as well as a learning, nurturing, and all of that that the kids are involved in. Anyway, long story short. Um, Recently, right before I got there, um, some of the goats had baby goats. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen baby goats and their antics, but if you go to YouTube and you just type in baby goats, there's literally millions of videos of baby goats because they are hilarious. They, I mean, the way they, they interact with each other, they're boing up and down, up and down on each other. They want to get onto the highest thing. They're hilarious, right? To, so I get to the safe home. I come in and one of the younger girls in our care, she's five years old. She comes running up to me. She's so excited to show me the new baby goats. And I'm like, all right. So she grabs me by the hand and we go running down to the farm area where the baby goats are. And sure enough, we get there and she pulls me in and she's laughing hysterically at the antics of these baby goats. And I and it's contagious. Right. And I'm laughing hysterically. She's laughing hysterically until I start paying attention to the size of the hand that's holding mine. And there was this strange moment of impact of this. I should not be in a place called a safe home for children five years old. Why is a five-year-old in a place called a safe home? And the, and the flood of the understanding of what has created the scenario that there's a five-year-old that needs care in a safe home because of what has happened to her. But then at the same time, the uh, and this is one of our core values as Love 146, the unfiltered joy that this child was experiencing at the antics of baby goats. And it was this strange mix of the harshness of the reality and the hope of a child getting their childhood back and getting their their life back all in the same things. So yeah, though, all that's a long, long way to answer the question. I'm impacted um, by, by all of these uh, stories day in um, and day out.
1: I mean, how can you not be, right? Yeah, yeah. You said there's unspoken pressure on nonprofit organizations to only share success stories. What causes that pressure? Does it come from inside organizations or is that pressure more from external sources? It's a great question. Um, so I, I had an aha moment.
2: I have a lot of aha moments. Um, I guess if you, if you have a bent towards being a forever learner and you're a curious person, you get a lot of aha moments, but years ago um, uh, we had uh I was in a conversation with a colleague um, at love 146 who she had just experienced the horrific loss of a family member to due to really hard circumstances and she was uh, she was in in a place still of immediate grief and she was going walking through that place of grief and and at the same time we did this particular day we had just heard that one of the kids that had gone through our care home in, in the philippines did really well was reintegrated back into a community was doing really well we got news that she was back in a vulnerable situation and and her story had been shared she wanted to share her story she she was an adult now and and she wanted to share her story so her story was shared publicly obviously with her identity concealed and all of that but she really wanted to empower other young people and all of that so it was a publicly shared story and um we had heard that she was back in a vulnerable situation and it was a gut punch. We were just like really worried about her. What do we need to do to make sure that, um, you know, she's not in, she's not at risk and, and what do we have to put in place in, in order to ensure her safety again? But it was that feeling again, of like the two steps forward, three steps back. So, and so I'm, I'm lamenting this with what do we do? You know, her story has been shared publicly. We've got to make sure she's safe, you know, and not at risk anymore. And, and walking through the end of the struggle there. Right. And, and I was like, man, and it's so hard because um, there is this unspoken pressure that you feel as a charity that people want to hear the stories with the fairy tale endings, right? People want to hear the successes, the victories, the triumphs, because that's what they'll fund. That's what they'll get behind and everything. And so there's this pressure to only tell those stories right which is not real life, right How many of us can say that hey, every story of my own life has a fairy tale ending because that's not true at least not for me anyway and probably all of your listeners can can say, yeah, that's not true for me either. so why would we expect that to be any different for kids that have been in these situations right so I'm lamenting all of this stuff I'm like, what do we do now and and I'll never forget this this colleague who's in her own place of grief, she looks at me and she says, Rob She is maybe our story as Love 146 is not just about triumphs, victories, and successes. Maybe our story is the story of never giving up. Maybe our story is a story of perseverance. And Chris, it was like somebody hit me with a two by four, man, of truth. That's another one of those truth things of just like, that's it. Right, This is about, and, and, and one of our core values at Level 146 now is steady perseverance, Right, that it's about persevering. It's about not giving up because I cannot, with any kind of integrity, stand in front of a kid who is in our care and say, hey, from now on, everything's going to be all right. As much as I would love to promise that, I can't because I don't know that. But with all integrity, I can stand in front of that kid and say, man, as long as you want us on this journey with you, we'll be on this journey with you. It's one of the reasons why we talk about we never close a case. We're not like child welfare. Or what at, You know, at 18, you're done. You're out of. No, we tell kids, man, as long as you need us, if you're if you. Go out of our care, and years down the road, you're struggling again. You can reach back out to us, and we will be there for you. It's the steady perseverance. And, and I, maybe I'm new to this, but it, it maybe it was only my, like, dumb aha moment, but it was just a few years ago that for the first time, I saw the word severe in the word perseverance. And I'm like, of course. That completely makes sense. Perseverance only makes sense in the context of the severity of the circumstances, right, that you're persevering through. You never hear somebody that's doing great and everything's going okay saying, I'm really persevering, right? It's always, man, when you're in the trenches and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and somehow you keep going, right? You don't give up. And again, going back to the examples of this that we look to oftentimes, are kids, you know, it's not just some sort of thing that we pull out of our own deep well of goodies. We look to kids and we look in like, wow. This kid is still in it. They're still fighting for, you know, uh, yeah, for life and recovery. It's so powerful, man. So, yeah. So, it's not about. and, and, And here's the interesting thing is we have found since then that actually donors and supporters, they don't want really successes and victories and triumphs. They want the real deal. They want transparency. They want the honest narrative and saying that, yeah, sometimes it is two steps forward and three steps back, but we're not giving up. And there seems to be more of an appreciation for that um, than there is of just like, oh, it's all good and it's all going to end well. Um, So yeah, steady perseverance, man. Not all all
1: unicorns and rainbows? No,
2: it's not, man. As much as we would love it to be that way. And I think we're all learning. I mean, I mean I've mean, i been, I'm, I just turned 60 this year, right? So, lots of reflecting. The organization just turned 20. Um, so, this is our 20th year as an organization. So, there's a lot of reflecting. And yeah, I don't see a lot of rainbows and unicorns, and that's okay, right? But I see a lot of amazing, beautiful things happening um, in the lives of not just kids, but in my own life and people that join the fight and all of that. That it's like, this is worth it. This is absolutely worth it. So yeah.
1: You just mentioned a moment ago about the colleague saying never giving up. Mm-hmm. And then a few minutes before that, you talked about the moment you had realizing that you've got a five-year-old's hand in your yeah. hand in a safe house.
0: Yeah.
1: Have there been times when you've said to yourself or others, the problem is just too damn big. I just can't take it anymore and let someone else tag in and take the fight. Yeah. Um, I would say almost daily be totally honest. I don't think there's a
2: day that goes by that you're not like right there where it's just like, oh my gosh, it is. It's too big. And that's why having to break it down into bite-sized pieces, right? Of just like, this is our piece. And even as an organization, our growth and our evolution as an organization has been informed partly of that too, of like, hey, we can't do it all. We don't do investigations. We led that to the, the other, you know, we found this is our piece. This is what we can bring um, to the table. But I don't think that there's a day that goes by that there's just not. And then there's those days, too, that are way harder than others, right? Where you're looking for a successful prosecution and it just doesn't happen, right? I mean, kid, I, we, we had a, a, um, a child in our care that um, her perpetrator was not apprehended, was not found. And, um, and she, she described it, she goes, I feel like there's a thorn inside of my heart. It's always there. Um, and I feel that all that, I'm, I'm aware of it all the time. It's a pain that never leaves. And it was this, it was the sense of like, the, the, the desire for justice and it and it being just out of arms reach right where it's just like ah oh, so close but it's not there and that and, and that description i'll never forget that description because it just really impacted me feeling like this thorn and it was it it actually was 4 years later that her her, her perpetrator was apprehended and ended up um i believe got t- uh, 20 years to life and i remember her saying she goes i feel like that thorn has been pulled out my chest. Not that everything. I mean, still, she's still recovering and all of that. But that one piece of it um, was removed, and it was a, it was a good thing and a good day. So we've learned to celebrate the good days and and the and the small wins. Our our director in the Philippines, she says our kids celebrate the grass turning green, you know, a, a blue sky, and even that. I mean, there's some life lessons there, right? Of like, wow when's the last time I've really noticed and appreciated the blue sky or the grass turning green, right? But when you've been in places like these kids have been, those are things and you start paying more attention to life. And, uh, and that's, that's a good thing,
1: being more aware. A few moments ago, you were talking about donors and what they're looking for. Something that really impressed me about the Love 146 website was its list of how people can get involved, ranging from starting with learning to engaging your faith, to hosting an event and yes of course donating can you briefly go through that list and tell people how they can get involved
2: yeah i mean we we always start with educating right educate yourself learn as much as you can and our our website has a plethora, and I just wanted to use that word at some point. So there it is, (laughs) a plethora of resources available to educate yourself and good resources too, for parents, for teachers. I mean, uh, we have, we just finished a great webinar that um, uh, one of my colleagues did with her husband, who uh, is, is a medical doctor, pediatrician at Yale, on the use of social media as parents, how do you navigate social media and your kids and what does that look like and so lots of resources um uh, an online safety guide all of that stuff so educating yourself and the resources are there we have no excuse anymore to not be educated on on issues like this it's all there there's this thing called google i don't know if you heard about it um but it's it's really yeah it's 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 a good thing um, exactly. Um, but yeah, so start with educating yourself and then finding ways to then you spread the word, right? You, you you in conversations, you share with people and you don't have to be that person all the time in every conversation. Let me tell you what I'm learning, right? But I, I often t- talk about myself being the dinner guest from hell, all right? Where it's just <laughs> sort of like you invite me to dinner and she's like, oh, so what do you do? Oh, you don't want to ask me that question. Um, but yeah, so to educate yourself, and you know, people oftentimes will be like, "Hey, besides give money, what can I do?" But really, sometimes that's the simplest and most effective thing that people can do. We have Giving Tuesday that's coming up here in just a couple of weeks, right? That we just launched today our our push to raise funds on Giving Tuesday. You won't believe how far that those those funds go and the impact that those funds have, involving your community of faith, wherever you you know if you're connected to a community of faith, getting your community of faith involved. We've seen amazing things happen happen um in those realms so yeah so there's a lot of things and they're all there on our website
1: rob morris thank you so much for being with us today oh man thank you
2: thank you for having me
1: no and thank you for the extremely important work that you're doing um no offense but i hope you go out of business soon yeah thank you that would be a that would be a good day yeah if you want to contact love 146 the website is love146.org again that's love 146org the email address is info at love146.org, and their phone number is 203-298-8788. I'm Chris Meek. Thank you for audience for joining us today. For More details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ChrisMeekPublicFigure, and on Twitter at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then...